This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. So we do have a long passage today, but it is a passage full of gripping action, so I don't think you'll be bored. And we're going to do it in pieces today, a section at a time, because it is a lot to hold in your mind. So let's begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 14. And let me give some context. First of all, here we are, the people of Israel are, have been overrun by the Philistine army, this technologically, numerically advanced enemy to the west of theirs who have come up into the hill country. Um, and the Israelites are on the run. They're vastly outnumbered. They're also outgunned because the Philistines have weapons and the Israelites do not. It's only Saul and his father, his son Jonathan, who have spears and swords, and they are deeply demoralized. Saul was meant to wait on God for Samuel to come. He didn't wait on God, and therefore Samuel said, the kingdom's being taken away from you. Your son is not going to follow you. There's not going to be a dynasty that is going to outlast you. And now in this chapter, we see the real tragedy of that. Because we're about to encounter the kind of man Saul's son really is. 1 Samuel chapter 14. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews were crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Let's just stop there and reflect upon this. The army of Saul has dwindled down to 6,000 men. 80% of his army has deserted him. They're hiding in holes in the ground, in caves, in thickets in the forest. And Saul is outnumbered possibly 50 to 1 against the Philistine army. And this is clearly a situation that calls for passivity, for holding back. Our only strategy for victory in Saul's mind is simply to outlast the Philistines. 
Perhaps they'll get tired. Perhaps they'll run out of supplies and go back to their home country. We're certainly not going to go forward and engage these guys with this kind of number. So here's Saul, well away from the front lines. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. It might be a cave shaped like a pomegranate in the inside. He's hiding out, waiting for this threat to pass by. He's been rejected by God. The prophet Samuel is not with Saul. The best that Saul can do is a great-grandson of Eli. And if you were with us months ago when we began this book, you might remember that Eli had a house that was also cursed by God, rejected by him, and God said, no one else in your family is going to be the high priest. And here, Saul, the rejected king, has with him a rejected priest. And the text goes out of its way to note the uncle of this priest, and normally it doesn't mention uncles in lineages, but his uncle is Ichabod, the little baby that was born as the news of the Philistine victory years earlier had arrived, and his name means the glory has departed from Israel. And we wonder if the glory has not departed or is not departing with Saul himself. But Saul has a son, Jonathan, his oldest son, the crown prince, the second in command. And Jonathan is not a man to sit back under the pomegranate tree and wait passively for the threat to pass. He is someone who wants to go into action. And he begins to explore a plan with his armor bearer, his squire, his apprentice, the man who carries half of the equipment in the Israelite army on his back. Let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Let's go to the front lines and see if perhaps something will develop. And we notice in passing that Jonathan does not tell his father Saul. We have this hint of a separation, an alienation between father and son. You get the feeling that Jonathan knows full well what will happen if he asks for his father the king's permission. This is not the kind of plan that Saul would ever dream up, and he's going to shut Jonathan down. But Jonathan begins to the it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission school of thought. I'm going to go ahead and, and see what happens on my own initiative. And he goes to the front line. The front line is a wadi, a dried up riverbed between two cliffs that stand like broken teeth on either side. It's a threatening, forbidding place. And we're not totally sure what the names of these cliffs mean. One possibility is that they mean thorny and slippery, not the most promising places for an attack. And Jonathan's standing there, looking across at the Philistines, and he feels a righteous anger in his heart. These are the uncircumcised enemies of God. They don't have the covenant sign in their bodies. They're not part of the people of God. And yet they are the ones occupying the promised land. Something is wrong here. This is not the way that God intended it to be. We're not going to allow ourselves to be content with this situation. Something needs to happen. And so he begins to propose to his armor bearer a plan to go across and launch a two-man assault on this Philistine outpost. Perhaps, he suggests, the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. It's this perfectly balanced suggestion that there may be a possibility that if we act, God will meet us. Jonathan 
is not pretending to know what the will of God is in this situation. He's only offering a perhaps, just a perhaps. Let's explore this possibility because, and here is his root conviction, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few, in verse 6. A line well worth highlighting or underlining in your Bible. Nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, whether by many or by few. Yep, it's just two of us. There's only 600 of us back at camp. But those numbers mean absolutely nothing if God is with us. There are no hopeless situations when you are on God's side. No hopeless situations. And our problems, of course, always arrive when we do our calculations and leave the living, powerful, limitless God out of the picture. But Jonathan is a man with deep theological convictions. And by the way, these are not mere abstractions in his mind. This is a conviction that is going to lead Jonathan into risky, death-defying action. The source of Jonathan's faith is not his strong personality. It is his awareness of the greatness of God. Jonathan is a worshiper of God. He has encountered God. He has beheld the face of God. And in his worship, he's realized nothing can stop God. The size of our army has no bearing whatsoever on God's ability to save. We simply don't even weigh the scales down. Nothing can stop our God. And this is a faith that leads Jonathan into action. It's all very well to reflect on these things back at the pomegranate tree or in your cave or hiding out in the thicket or deep down in the cistern of a well. Jonathan's faith is the kind of faith that moves him forward to the front lines of God's holy war. See, there is a kind of faith that says, well, numbers don't matter. The size of the army doesn't matter. God doesn't need me. So if he wants to save, he can go ahead and save. And save. God can take the risks. He can do it if he wants. I'll stay back safely myself. But Jonathan's faith in God pushes him forward because perhaps it's you and I, young armor bearer, perhaps we are the point at which God is going to save his people. We don't know what the will of God is. We're not sure if God has unlocked this door in front of us. The only way we can find out is to stretch our hands forward and turn the handle. Let's see what happens. Let's step forward and take a risk. And so Jonathan and his armor Jonathan proposes a plan, a test to his armor bearer. Let's provide two options for God. We're going to send up a trial balloon and try to discern what is the will of God in this situation. We're going to climb down our side of the cliff. We're going to expose ourselves in the empty river valley. And we're going to offer, we're going to let the Philistines see us. We're going to put ourselves in this vulnerable place. And then we're going to give them an A-B test. A couple of options for them to choose from, essentially. If they say, wait down there, we'll come and attack you, we know that God is not with us. On the other hand, should the Philistines invite us up to their little outpost, then be of good heart, we know that God is going to be with us. 
Now, this is a risky test because to go up this cliffside, this jagged cliffside, means exposing yourself to the arrows and stones of the enemy most of the way up. It means that by the time you arrive at the top of this cliff, you are physically exhausted, and then there's no possible way of retreat. This is a do-or-die situation Jonathan is suggesting. And so they go down to the valley, they let the Philistine outpost see them, and the Philistines shout down these mocking words about these Hebrew scum crawling out of their holes like so many vermin. And then they say, come on, come on, up, come up to us. We'll teach you guys a lesson. We'll show you something. And then Jonathan knows God is with us. The handle is turning. Let's climb up. And Jonathan and his armor bearer scramble up this cliffside on their hands and knees. They pop over the edge. And then immediately they begin fighting. And that first burst of fighting, they cut a swath through this Philistine outpost. They take over the outpost. People are being killed. Jonathan is striking them down. His armor bearer is killing them behind me. And Jonathan's faith is rewarded with the beginning of victory. Let's keep on reading to see what happens next. Verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces, see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved beyond Beth-Avon. Jonathan and his armor bearer pop over the cliff and panic strikes the Philistine outpost. The ground shakes. God is on the move. And the panic spreads from this little outpost on this toothy rock to the camp, to the field, to the raiders far beyond the camp. And the army begins melting away in all directions. The Philistines realize there is some supernatural power at work. And then the narrator's camera takes us back to Saul's headquarters to the lookouts who are peering across this valley. They're seeing the dust rising. They're hearing the noise of panic. They're seeing the Philistines fleeing in disarray, and they report this to the king. And Saul realizes Jonathan's not with us. His armor bearer is not with us. Something is happening on the front lines. But he seems to have learned his lesson from chapter 13. He doesn't rush into action. He invites the priests with the ark to come forward to consult what is the will of God in this situation. God, please tell us what to do. We only have 600 men here. We want to be sure that we're charging into victory and not into a massacre. But while the process of discerning the will of God is going on, the uproar across the valley increases. The sound of panic carries to Saul. 
And he interrupts this process of seeking the will of God. This is something unprecedented in the Old Testament. He tells the priest, withdraw your hand, which would have been in his ephod to pull out the lots. Stop, stop, cancel this. There's no need to seek the will of God. We need to get moving. Time is running out. Let's charge into battle. So the process of seeking the will of God is aborted. Saul and the Israelite army, such as it is, goes across the valley and begin to join Jonathan and his armor bearer in fighting the Philistine army. There is confusion in the Philistine camp. They all start fighting each other, and the sense of confusion is increased because they have with them Hebrews, perhaps Israelites who had deserted from Saul and gone over to what they assumed would be the winning side. And realizing that Yahweh is fighting against the Philistines, these turncoats remove their uniforms and begin to kill the Philistines around them. Not only that, the Israelites who had hid themselves in the caves and thickets and holes emerge. They're filled with courage. They start attacking, and people are popping up on all sides of the Philistines, fighting them. There is total confusion, defeat. The Philistines run from the dangers of the hill country back to the plains, and the Israelites chase them for 20 miles. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, verse 23. In case we hadn't realized, this is clearly a miraculous, supernatural salvation of the people. The Lord saved Israel. Now let's keep on reading. Verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan hadn't heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then... One of the soldiers told him, "Uh, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater Well, things have been going well so far, but then Saul has to step in and begin messing things up and causing trouble. He puts his own army under distress because of this oath that he makes. If anyone dares to eat any food before the evening, let there be a curse on this person before I have avenged myself on my enemies. We begin to see that Saul has this religious spirit that is quite in contrast with his son Jonathan. It's this idea common to every human religious impulse that if we punish ourselves in some way, we can force God to be on our side. This is something that has arisen out of Saul's own mind. He doesn't ask God what his will is. He lays this oath on the army. And notice the reason for this oath is that Saul wants to have personal vengeance on his enemies. The verse before has just told us 
the Lord saved Israel on that day. But Saul is making it all about himself. Victory belongs to the Lord, but Saul is claiming this victory for himself. He didn't even begin this attack. He didn't assure this attack. He showed up late, but now this is all about him. And the army is in distress because they are running 20 miles, not on a nice smooth downhill track. They're going up and down rugged terrain, fighting the enemy who's fleeing from them at a time where they have the greatest need of caloric intake, and they are staggering and fainting because they have no food in their bodies. And they go into this wood, and there is just honey oozing on the ground. But they're so afraid of King Saul and his curse, and Saul is not a man whose curses are to be taken lightly, that none of them gives into the temptation to have a little lick of this sweet, sweet honey. Except for Jonathan, because he has been separated physically from his father. He doesn't know that this oath has been given, and he sticks out his staff and takes just a little bit of honey, and his eyes brighten. Just that little sugar rush that we all need. There was a kid I used to babysit. Jeremy Browns is his name. And when he went to college, he would take with him a little whiskey flask. It didn't have whiskey in it. It had maple syrup in it. So during class, he could just have a little, a little tot of maple syrup. And uh, oddly, he was less worried about being thought of as a teenage alcoholic than some weird maple syrup drinker. We all need that little bit of syrup, a little bit of honey to brighten our eyes and give us energy to do what we need to do. And as Jonathan does that, one of the soldiers with him sees this to his horror and says, Jonathan, don't you know there's a terrible curse on anyone who dares to eat food? That's why we're all fainting and staggering. And then Jonathan says, not very politely, not the most respectful thing to say about his father, the king, the commander-in-chief, but in his frustration that Saul is ruining this victory with this foolish oath, my father has made trouble for the country. He's causing needless difficulties. Imagine if we had all had the strength to follow through on this victory that God has given us. And now because of this, yeah, we might have won a victory and forced the Philistines from their position and killed some of them, but it's not going to be a complete victory. They're going to come back because they were not completely crushed. My father has troubled the land. And then this begins to cause further problems. Verse 31. That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Because of Saul's foolish oath, he puts the people in a place of temptation caused by sheer hunger and exhaustion. And when they finally fall upon some Philistine spoil, they attack it like ravenous birds. And they take these sheep and these cattle and goats, and they don't take the time to raise these animals up off the ground to drain 
the blood out of it. And this was one of the most serious uh, commands in the Old Testament. Don't drink the blood because that's sacred. It belongs to God. That's where the life of the animal is. Before you eat any meat, drain the blood. But they don't have time for this. They're so starving. They just kill these animals and eat them just like that. And Saul is told that this has happened, and he's angry. He's angry that there has been a ritual violation of the law of God. Saul, in fact, is a religious man. He's not a devout man, but he is a religious man. And Saul is concerned that violating these commandments of God and these oaths is going to cause God not to fight on our side any longer. We need to follow the rules to keep God on side. And so he is furious that his soldiers are eating this meat with the blood still in it. You have betrayed me. You have broken faith, he said. He's angry, but he's the one, in fact, who's caused this whole problem. Anyways, the problem is seemingly resolved, and we move on in verse 36. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. Surely, as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Jonathan said, or Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the man said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. So after this delay with the sacrificed meat, Saul is not willing to give up this pursuit of the enemy. He proposes an all-night assault on the enemy to kill as many of them before they can return to the safety of their fortresses. And Saul is about to launch forth on this when the priest taps him on the shoulder, by the way, should we not perhaps ask the will of God? It's not Saul tellingly who thinks about consulting God. It's the priest who's with him. Well, Saul is willing to stop, right? Sorry, I forgot about that. Good idea. Let's see what God has to say. And they consult the will of God. Now, we're not totally sure how this worked in the Old Testament. What we do know is this. The priest had a breastplate called the ephod. And in the breastplate was a pouch with seemingly two objects or stones called Urim and Thummim. 
And perhaps they were of different colors, we're not sure, but somehow the priest would use these, and these were capable of giving three different answers to any question. Yes, no, or no answer at all. Perhaps it was like a coin needed to be flipped three times in a row with the same answer to determine, yes, this is what God wants from us. And so the priest begins this ritual, and the stones are not coming out either way. God is not answering Saul. God is ominously silent in this situation. And you wonder if this has some relation to Saul earlier, earlier silencing God in this chapter, and now God is not willing to speak to him. Well, Saul is upset about this because he knows there's something, something is wrong. Something is amiss. There's some sinner, some traitor in the camp, as it happened earlier in Israelite history, and this person must be dealt with. This person needs to be executed, removed from the people of God so that we can continue on our way to finish off this victory. Whose sin caused this? And the lot first points to the royal family, and then between Saul and Jonathan, the choice is made, and the lot points to the crown prince. What have you done? Saul asks his son. And Jonathan confesses, yeah, I had a little taste of honey. That's all I did. And now, now I must die. And it is striking. I mean, the text doesn't say what the emotions of Saul were, but there's disturbingly no evidence that Saul wept, that he was grieved, that he tried to figure out some way out of the situation of killing his own son. And it is strange that back in chapter 11, when there were people murmuring against Saul when he was first elected king, and Saul is very magnanimous to those rebels, nope, no one's going to be killed. God has wrought a great victory today. And this king, who was formerly so generous and magnanimous, is now faced with his son, is ready to have him executed. No hesitation. And the troops are standing there. They haven't answered Saul's questions because they know who the guilty person is. And as they see the situation happening, their mouths are hanging open. Here is Jonathan, the hero who created this whole situation, who risked his own life to rescue the people of God. And now Jonathan is at danger of being killed by his own father. And the people of Israel intervene. They step forward. King Saul, wait a second. This is crazy talk. There's no way you can allow this to happen. And they swear an oath themselves. May God do to us and more also if Jonathan is allowed to die. There's no way we can kill the hero of the day. And Jonathan escapes death at the hand of his own father. Let's keep on reading as this chapter concludes. After Saul, this is verse 47, after Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who plundered him. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Melchishua. The name of his older daughter was Merib, and that of his younger was Michael. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul took a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. 
Just three quick things I want to point out with these concluding verses of our chapter. The first is this striking contrast with how Saul began his kingship with where he is at this point. When Saul was chosen as king, you may remember, he was hiding among the baggage. He was timid. He was afraid. He was deeply humble and unaware that he did not deserve this honor. But now we're told that he seized hold of the kingship. The NIV's translation assumed the kingship is far too weak. Saul has now grabbed a hold of the kingship with both hands. And this man who was so reluctant to lead now has a firm grip on leadership. And Saul does enjoy military success. He's not a complete failure. He's fighting and defeating people on every side. But the one mission, the one reason that Saul had been called as king was to defeat the Philistines. And though he fights with them all his life, there's bitter war going back and forth. Saul is never able to have complete victory over Israel's greatest enemy. And so his reign ultimately is a failure. And then there's this striking contrast in the end between Jonathan and his father Saul. Jonathan is the man saying, the Lord will not be hindered from saving, whether it's by many or by few. But Saul's the kind of man who is on the lookout for valiant warriors. His confidence is not in the favor and nearness and victory of God. Saul is building up an army of warriors. Saul believes numbers matter and human strength matters. You know, this whole chapter really is set up as a choice between two men. Just as the lot must choose between Saul and Jonathan, these two men are presented before us as potential kings. They stand in contrast in this whole chapter. Here's King Saul, first of all, a man, as I said, who is religious but not devout. He's not disrespectful to the commandments of God. He's not a hypocrite. He's not insincere. But he has a very narrow and limited view of God. Saul's attitude is fundamentally pagan. God is an object that must be carefully manipulated to get him to do what we want him to do. And I recognize those rituals are costly and they're complicated, but I am willing to do them. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that God is on my side. My relationship with God is all about manipulating and controlling him so he will do what I want him to do. And as always happens with people like that, is they end up making harsh rules that they place on other people, harsh rules that always get in the way of the purposes of God. And these kind of people turn angry and vengeful when those rules are violated. They're making things more complicated, more punishing, in order to somehow win the favor of this God. And yet Saul is constantly out of sync with God. He seems to be a man who's acting when he should be waiting. He hesitates when he should act. He's always somehow out of sync with God. And we see in Saul's life this increasing alienation from God. He's alienated from his own son, and he's alienated from the silent people before him. Saul becomes increasingly lonely and isolated in his life. 
And in contrast to Saul, we have his son, Jonathan. This whole book, for, uh, these two books, First and Second Samuel, are really a story of fathers and sons. And it's amazing that the most attractive son in these two books is the one with perhaps the poorest father, Jonathan and Saul. Great men of faith can come forth out of mediocre fathers. And Jonathan is not a man who is trying to manipulate God for his own purposes. Jonathan's trying to get himself on God's agenda. It's not about getting God on my side. It's making sure that I am on God's side. And this is the beauty of that, perhaps, of Jonathan. Perhaps God will act for us. And I'm aware there are Christians today who would perceive that perhaps and any perhaps as a shameful lack of faith. If Jonathan had only spoken into reality, then God would have been forced to act on his behalf. Say it, claim it, declare it. But Jonathan is a man who recognizes God's freedom to act. Faith is not a technique for getting God to do what I want him to do. If I can only fire up enough faith and get a tight enough grip on this request, I can make God do what I want him to do. And that is a fundamentally pagan way of approaching God. Jonathan respects the freedom of God to act. I know God can do this. That is not the issue. But I don't know whether God will do this. That is what I am open to. I'm allowing God to act in the way that he chooses to act. And I'm stepping forward. I'm making myself available to God. I'm asking God for a sign of his will because I'm offering myself up to his agenda. I'm not here to seize hold of my own kingdom. I'm offering myself for the kingdom of God. Saul is religious. Jonathan is devout. Jonathan is a true worshiper who has encountered the greatness of God. And therefore, Jonathan is a man who's willing to risk himself because he serves a God without limits. And in our passage, Jonathan is a small picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the son, in his case, in perfect harmony with the will of his father, the king. And in faith and obedience, Jesus goes alone into the camp of the enemy. The taunting enemy who are expecting to destroy and to humiliate him. And God gives Jesus the victory. And we follow up behind him against the forces of evil. You know, there's a wonderful grace in this chapter because, of course, we're not like Jonathan. But perhaps we can be like the armor bearer behind him, who's with him, heart and soul, following up behind him, joining in the battle. But perhaps we're not even that because salvation that day was not just worked for Jonathan and his armor bearer. It was worked for those who were hiding out in terror, shaking in their caves in cisterns and thickets. It was for the army hanging back under the pomegranate tree. Salvation was even for the Hebrews who had given up and were now serving the enemy. It was for them all. And we're about to celebrate communion this afternoon. 
this is not a ritual action. We are performing some kind of magic to control God and get him to do what we want him to do. This is a feast celebrating the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. Whether we're heroes or cowards, this is for all the people of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and then we're going to stand and respond in worship. Father God, we are here for you, here for you to forgive us, here for you to work salvation for us. And we confess to you that so often we do try to manipulate you, that what we think of as worship is more often a way to control you, to get you to do what we want, to answer our prayers and to solve our problems and to perhaps even build up our little kingdom. Forgive us, O Lord. Remind us of the greater grace and joy of your kingdom. Give us the courage to follow Jesus wherever he leads because you are the God without limits. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.